Greetings, Rays community. Brent coming in live from the Tampa, St. Petersburg area as my family and I continue the RV homeschooling remote work adventure. And recently I got an email and I love getting this email about the podcast. I got an email from Greg Knott, who's joining us today, who wrote a question. He said, Brent, I've been following your podcast and I'm wondering if you'll feature someone in gift planning. I think you're missing some good talking points in regard to the interplay between annual gifts and planned gifts, among other things. And so I responded and said, Greg, I'd love to learn more about gift planning. I probably am missing talking points because I don't know very much about it. Will you come on the show? And here he is. So, Greg, welcome. Thanks, Brent. Uh, good morning. And any of you that are listening and feeling like we're missing things on the podcast, send an email like that, and there's a good chance that we'll welcome you as well. So I am excited to catch up with you, Greg, because... You are the first person on the podcast who has decades of experience with Germanic languages and a law degree with a specialty in gift planning. So tell me more about that. Uh, it probably is uh, an unusual trajectory to get from where I started to where I am. But, uh, you know, always um, certainly useful in terms of dealing with the academic side of the house, um, dealing with donors from all sorts of backgrounds. So it, it's a much better fit than on surface that PhD in German literature seemed like it would be. So you studied German at the University of Delaware. Was that, I mean, you know, you're 17, all your friends are talking about what they want to do. And you're like, I want to do German. Tell me more about kind of how you got to that path. Well, originally I thought I was going to study chemistry. And a lot of the uh, major players in chemical industries are in German-speaking Europe, Switzerland and Germany in particular. And so, okay, well, this, this German thing is going to be practical. I'll do that on the side. And then over time, I, I don't know if we calculated too many atomic radii or what it was, but something just seemed a little less enthralling about uh, thinking about chemistry every day, but getting out and dealing with people and talking and thinking about ideas in studying languages was, uh, was really appealing. And I was very fortunate uh, at the University of Delaware, they have wonderful study abroad programs. So I was fortunate to be able to take advantage of those. And um, in the course of that, just um, got deeper and deeper into that um, field and uh, really thought that's probably what I would end up going on to do professionally. So be a professor of German. In the course of graduate school, I met my now wife, who was getting the exact same degree that I was getting with the same um, subspecialty. So it wasn't realistic for us to think we would both get a job in the same place. And so I thought, okay, well, I'll just do something else. Um, you know, I, I can come up with some other satisfying and rewarding career. And uh, that's when I transitioned into law school. And I, I sort of transitioned the sense that I taught law, excuse me, I taught German while doing law school. And uh, in the course of law school, I also did research on legal tax avoidance, tax optimization mechanisms in German-speaking Europe. So there was actually like a relevant application of the background. Um, and then in the course of law school, it was the Great Recession. And my, um, you know, my outlook on the job market was pessimistic. Then we learned we were expecting and it got, uh, it was a point where we just really had to figure something out. So I was talking to career services and they said, uh, well, maybe the advancement people would have something. They're always hiring. And, uh, and sure enough, they were, they were willing to talk and the law school uh, experience was very helpful. 
Um, obviously, the ability to do research and writing from graduate school as well was a great fit for, for the sorts of things that you end up doing in advance of it, but that you never imagined you would be doing. And um, from there, I was, uh, you know, I've, I've been in it since then. So I've been uh, fortunate to find a, a good and satisfying, rewarding fit um, fairly early on. So is it fair to say that European tax evasion law is kind of the dark side and, and planned giving is the light side? Is, are, are those sort of counterbalancing uh, areas of expertise? Well, first off, I, I do have to make a, a comment on the terminology. So evasion would be illegal things. Avoidance ah. or optimization, as you often hear, would be legal strategies for doing it. So we were working on the avoidance side of it, the, the optimization of um, uh, paying no more than you have to pay. And so, uh, so that piece actually is highly, highly relevant for what I do now, for obvious reasons. Um, you know, part of what we do in gift planning is, you know, historically it was the think about what happens when you die and you have a bequest and where does it go? Uh, well, we've evolved to where there's a lot more involved to it. Um, so uh, with retirement plans, the way they're structured now with, um, you know, property holdings, annuities, the shift from defined benefit to defined contribution. There's a lot of, of kind of thought along the way where you have to think on the front end about, okay, well, what's the planning? How do I do this in a way that works for me and, and the people and organizations in my life? And then you also have to talk about the outcome side of it, which is the more, uh, more common sort of development conversation. And just as a point of reference for our listeners, you've been in a gift planning area uh, specialization for basically nine years now at the Yukon Foundation. And um, I would love a little bit of just gift planning 101. I mean, you wouldn't have sent the email if you didn't feel like we were missing certain parts of the conversation in past episodes. So what sparked you to send the email? Give us a little bit of the 101 on maybe where gift planning has been, uh, but also want to get into some of the biggest missed opportunities, the biggest changes. Has the pandemic shifted your view on, on plan giving. So we'll come back to that, but just give me a little bit more of what prompted you to send the email and what your observations were about what we were missing. Yeah, so we, uh, at the Yukon Foundation, I think this is pretty common. We have various channels where we're sort of working on business development. And so some of it is through marketing outreach, through newsletters and emails and these sorts of things. And sometimes people will uh, reply into us to say they would like to do something. So that's sort of one trajectory. Uh, another one is when we're looking at- okay, Can I ask like, does that happen once a week, once a month, twice a year? I mean, what, what's the volume? That sort of comes in waves. Um, sometimes like around, around this season when people are thinking about um, what they're gonna do with their RMD, their required minimum distribution from the IRA up through tax season, there's a lot of planning going on. And so that's when it's on people's minds to be thinking about things and be updating things. So that's sort of one high point. Another high point is toward the end of the year, when again, they're thinking about kind of year end implications of giving. And, and oftentimes that means thinking bigger pictures. So how do you integrate what you're doing this year with what you're going to be doing um, in the bigger sense? So if you have an endowment for a scholarship, okay, you add some each year, but then you also think about, well, Where's this headed? You know, some people they have a goal of saying, "I'd like to have a scholarship endowment of half a million dollars." Okay, well, what's the path to get there? And so that's that's sort of in their the back of their minds as they're looking at what they're doing currently. 
But that also involves projecting out to think about how do I get to that ultimate goal? Um, so it, it's sort of cyclical, but there is there's sort of a steady drip in terms of when we get response cards. Sometimes it's years after we've sent something out and we would have never guessed that this person hung on to this mailing or hung on to this email and is then following up with us. But it's just a question of when's the right time in their life to actually be moving forward in a planning sense. And so I imagine a small part of it is sending the marketing, hoping for the response. There's probably a name for those in the sales and marketing world. You might call that a bluebird when somebody emails you and is like, I'm ready to do business. Like, whoa, that's amazing. When you're coming in to me, you can't count on that, right? So a big part of it has to be, how do we think about balancing proactive outbound outreach, if you will, personalized outreach, while also having complementary broader marketing work? Is that right? And how do you think about balancing your time in that regard or your team's time? Yeah, absolutely. So we have to have an ongoing flow of messaging, both in terms of gifts happening, but also in terms of here are some, some planning tips and techniques that you might want to think about. Because a lot of people, they've typically thought about, okay, well, I have to earn money and I have to invest it and I have to think about the earning side, but they don't necessarily think about the um, the charitable aspect of how do I give it away? How do I do it effectively? And so we need to get people started thinking about those pieces. So there's got to be a technical aspect, not too much because most people don't want to digest that much, but just so they think a little bit about it and start to think I ought to do something. So that's that sort of ongoing flow of information. And then, and that's, I don't know, that, that's not a huge amount of the time and energy. Obviously you have to do it. It's just sort of an ongoing thing where it's cyclical and we do it. Um, but where we spend probably more time is thinking about the caseloads that we have, so existing um, book of business, you might say, uh, the caseloads that our other development authors have, and looking at the people in those caseloads to think about how do we um, talk about opportunities that are fit for those people. And you know, the exact strategy varies depending on what the household is, who, will, who is involved in the picture, are there other organizations? There are a lot of questions to think about there. But then um, there's also a sort of a third channel, and this is more the annual fund type piece, which is looking at longtime donors and taking the conversations that we have with them anyway, and thinking about what we might do that can take them up to the next level of commitment. So a lot of times people in that pool, they give every year or maybe they miss occasionally, but they give it whatever amount. It doesn't really matter if it's $50 or 5,000 or whatever the number is for them they've got that consistent interest. You know, we clearly are on their mind. They want us to do well, we matter. Uh, for some of those people, we really matter, but they haven't necessarily told us because they just think, well, I just give my $200 a year. I mean, they're not gonna wanna talk to me. Uh, but by looking at that pool, we oftentimes can have really substantial bequests surface out of it. And so looking at sort of the types of professional careers that people have there. Uh, for example, if people are academics, a lot of times they're sort of predisposed to support higher ed at high levels. Um, think about the types of income that they've had. So like people who work for say the state of Connecticut, they typically are going to have a very nice retirement pension and healthcare. So they're not as worried about costs and eating away at whatever wealth they've built up as somebody who has a defined contribution plan. So, so those are people where we have some like, opportunity. Help me understand the technical process 
Because every, like, as we sit here today, yesterday, last week, people have been giving to UConn, right? And some of those people, when you look at the profiles, might match exactly the kind of prospect that you're describing. And so uh, at the same time, I imagine you can't go in and look at every single gift that comes in or have somebody in your team do that to sort of eyeball test them for plan giving um, uh, referral, let's call it. So how often are you looking at that data and then really trying to say, okay, of the hundreds of thousands of constituents overall, these are the 50, 100,000 that have to be on our radar because all of the data indicates that if we haven't had a real clear conversation about plan giving opportunities, this could be the kind of audience that might react positively to that. I mean, how do you kind of balance because it takes time to foster those relationships. And if you were just looking at every time a gift came in, came in, oh, that, that person's given 20 years in a row, ding, 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 we need to get them into planned giving, you'd probably struggle to balance the consistency and persistence that is required to build these relationships, but at the expense of maybe having people fall through the cracks that actually are good prospects. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where the, the partnership with a lot of development officers across the organization and in particular people in sort of annual slash leadership fund positions or digital giving officers, um, you know, the dialogue with them is critical, uh, just ongoing sort of back and forth, um, because we know that people who are gift planner in gift planning um, pools typically also do like an annual gift. So it's something where we can sort of refer part of the dialogue to them and they're happy to have that they can in turn raise some of the questions that we might like to have asked and report back to us if there's something where they think there's potential. And so this is, I mean, really collaboration is the name of the game in gift planning because we, we have no specific constituents other than looking at the entire pool because in theory it could be anybody. So we have to work together with our development partners with people on the academic side of the university to say, Okay, well, who's got interest in things? Where do we think there's some potential to do more? And I would imagine a big part of your role is education, right? You've had to get educated on the nuances of gift planning, which I hope we can talk a little bit about some of the, the highest level themes around how gift planning can work, strategies that, that um, you found to be effective. You've got to educate donors externally on those possibilities because I'm sure in a lot of cases, donors simply have no idea how they might support you. And they might jump to a conclusion that if they don't have, you know, significant liquid wealth today, then they're not a major gift prospect, right? So they kind of disqualify themselves before understanding, I'm sure all the strategies that you'll share. But on the other hand, you've, I would imagine a lot of advancement professionals maybe are missing certain parts of gift planning the same way the Raise podcast has up until now. And so you must have to spend a lot of time educating people internally and there's, you know, turnover, people come and go. So do you feel like you're constantly, I mean, maybe you're like, you're, you are actually teaching. Is that sort of how this all comes full circle? Yeah, unquestionably, um, both internally and externally. Um, so we, we've thought about, okay, well, how, how do we think about it internally first? How do we talk with our development staff to find ways that they can actually come away with useful strategies? Uh, because so, so let's say I'm the new digital gift officer, I'm the new, um, you know, junior major gift professional, I just joined, what is my 
90 second, two minute, few minute crash course on gift planning? What are the real things that you want me to have in the back of my mind with every donor interaction? So we would probably talk about um, consistency of giving over time being a marker. Um, you know, another marker being something like doesn't have kids or doesn't have a lot of kids, um, you know, sort of obvious things. Uh, we would also talk about um, where the person is in life and, and sort of things that you might mention that are more suitable for people who are, say, over 70. You know, then you talk about IRAs. If it's under somebody who's younger, it doesn't make sense because that's not going to be where they're going to give immediately. Um, they may do a beneficiary designation. But I don't necessarily want the new person to, to focus too much on all the technical pieces. I really want them to think about the story of starting something and building. So a lot of times what we do in that case is really talk about uh, a case study. So look at a donor who's done something, talk about what that fact scenario is and why that looks really good, why the donor's really happy, why it works really well for us to give um, sort of a more relatable package of information to the development staff because they can get lost in details pretty quickly if we go too far down any technical path and that's not helpful. We want them to get the conversation started and know that- Like like what are the key, like you say the word annuity and people just tune out or what, you know, what are the other like buzzwords that when you say them, you just lose people? Uh, annuity is one that comes to mind. Um, anything about capital gains, most people tend to start tuning out at that word. Um, itemizing. I mean, there are lots of terms where people are like, oh, I don't want to think about that. My, my accountant does that or staff-wise, they say, I, I just can't remember all these things. Got it. Got it. Um, and so how about from a donor perspective, um, what are some of the biggest misconceptions about planned giving? And am I right in saying that people would automatically like disqualify themselves as being a big donor because they don't have a lot of liquid net worth. Therefore, the idea of a major gift scares them away, but maybe at the expense of even understanding, like what are some of the entry level or some of the maybe un underappreciated aspects of gift planning that maybe somebody in their 30s or 40s or 50s, I'm sure you have edge cases where people have um, been focused on this, have been uh, able to craft uh, planned gifts earlier than the stereotypical, you know, retiree, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we, um, we see people who are on the younger side who set up an insurance policy, for example, uh, with the specific intention that the proceeds from it will fund a scholarship. We have somebody to do that in memory of um, his parents. And so that's a, you know, that's just a one example of many that we could cite. Sorry about the phone in the background. Um, we, um, we also think about IRA beneficiary designations for people who are younger, just as sort of a, an entry point into thinking about what they might be able to do. And that's something where everybody can sort of relate to it in the sense that they filled out paperwork when they started whatever job they have. So they know this happens and something that maybe eventually is going to happen with that money, but they haven't really thought much about it. So it's a good education opportunity, irrespective of what the person's age is. Um, so those are a couple of things where you know, we don't have to work too hard to get people to see how it might be a fit. Um, think about the annuity piece of it. Uh, that's obviously something where it starts a little later in life. So depending on the organization's policies, there can be age restrictions. And we, um, 
you know, we want that conversation started in advance of when they actually want to establish the annuity so they can think about it. But oftentimes something as simple as um, a conversation about, um, you know, if somebody we worked with had a CD that matured and the rates are terrible now, well, maybe it's a good chance to roll that over into an annuity. That way you get uh, the option to take a deduction off of your taxes and you get some income going forward. So it's just a nice win-win thing for something you were going to do anyway to support the institution. You just said annuity and taxes, but I'm still with you and deductions. So those are a lot of buzzwords there, but um, no, that, that uh, definitely makes sense. And I guess I'd love to know what some of the most memorable planned gifts are that you've been a part of, or maybe that you've heard about in your, in your career. It doesn't mean that they need to be the biggest. Um, but when you think about, you know, creative structuring or just opportunities that have emerged to help donors maybe dream bigger or do more um, than they might've otherwise realized. Does anything come to mind? So my most memorable gift is um, this one came together a few years back and there may actually be a few people in Connecticut who heard about this one. It was covered in uh, the newspaper here, but I think for most people it'll be new. We had a widow who came to us and she had a problem she needed to solve. And uh, specifically related something her husband had done. So he uh, had been into hunting and, and, and in a big way. So he would do things like go on these like six week expeditions for hunting. And as a result of that, he had built up a massive collection of taxidermy specimens. Uh, and these are really exotic things. So like zebras, warthogs, leopards, I mean, you name it, we have, uh, a collection of 116 exotic taxidermy specimens that we got from this donor. And uh, she came to us and talked initially to the Museum of Natural History at the, at the university. And it was, uh, you know, like a lot of people, she was thinking, okay, well, I'll make this gift of the collection. It'd be great. Uh, but as it turned out, it's really expensive to have one of those sorts of collections because you have to have proper care for it, proper storage, um, sophisticated sorts of conservation techniques. And so we had to have a conversation and do a little bit of education with her in terms of like what we would need to happen to be able to actually accept this collection. So she was, uh, was open to that conversation. And, and so that's sort of where gift planning comes in here. Um, we talked with her about how she might endow care for it. She was able to do some of it outright, but she also set up a charitable remainder trust, which is a split interest gift where she gets income throughout her lifetime. The proceeds from the trust when she passes are used to care for the collection in this case. And there's a tax deduction on the front end. So it's a really nice arrangement and allowed her to provide for the collection and allowed us to have the care to, to be able to pay for this storage and, and conservation of it over time. So it was a really a good opportunity for us to to work with her, you know, the education process with her was an important one, but she totally understood it once we got into dialogue with her. Um, and I think this is also really a good example of collaboration. So what we in gift planning see is oftentimes either we start a relationship and someone else um, from one of the subject matter areas at the university comes into the picture to get their right outcomes, or like in this case, somebody coming from one of the units comes to us to, to get sort of the money piece figured out that helps make things possible. Um, and I think this is really uh, a key takeaway from some of the things going on right now in the, the virtual space where 
we're having a lot of conversations with a lot of people where we don't necessarily have deep relationships. But when we hear there's a sort of an interest there, um, that's really a great opportunity for us to bring in um, expertise either on the technical side or somebody starts with us from the various units. And we're seeing a lot of success in that space. Um, I know a lot of our regional gift officers in particular, um, but uh, also the, the sort of digital engagement type relationships are leading to planned gifts because that's a really good pool where we see people come in and sort of make gifts here and there, but we need to understand a little better what they're doing. And then when the timing is right, then they can come to us and we bring it up to the next level. So, um, you know, this, this gift is unique in terms of the taxidermy specimens, but I think it's also very typical in terms of the types of activities that we were seeing around it. Um, I will say for anybody who's listening, if you make it to Stores, Connecticut, and you want to see some taxidermy specimens, hit me up. I'll be glad to show you whatever we have. I also want to make sure to give credit where credit's due on this gift, although I had a rule in it. The real heavy lifting was with my coworkers, Frank Gifford and Hal Reed, and our general counsel, Suzanne O'Connor. So we want to make sure to give a shout out to all of them, and thanks for their good work on the project. Tell me a little bit about the relationship developing uh, process, because I feel like in other parts of fundraising, it can be a little bit simpler, right? It's, um, you know, could I count on you to give a thousand, a hundred thousand, a million, here's the impact, here's the story. But in, in putting out different proposals or maybe um, pressure testing your willingness to consider seven figure versus six figure versus five figure, there are different techniques that I can use to do that that aren't reliant on me kind of understanding your entire balance sheet. Whereas a lot of what you're describing is maybe the most, I don't know, transparency that a donor would, I mean, talking about all of the different asset types is very different than could I, you know, do you think a million to do X, Y, and Z would be within the realm of possible? And like, how do people, especially the millionaire, millionaire next door type who probably aren't having those conversations with very many people, period, even inside their nuclear family. Um, what is it like, you know, how do you kind of go there without, um, you know, pushing too hard or offending people? Um, but at the same time, if you don't know the information, it's hard for you to make um, suggestions or help them understand the alternatives. Yeah, and this again, gets sort of at that, that story aspect that we use with development staff internally, talking about the ways people have had an impact. And so like I have a donor in Northern New Jersey, for example, she supports her brother. And so her concern is making sure if she predeceases him that he will continue to receive support. So she's got an annuity that set, is set up that she gets payments. And then um, if he outlives her, then he gets payments. Um, so thinking about like a fact scenario like that one, you see we didn't get technical at all, just very straightforward. Here's the problem that you wanna address and here's how you can do it. Um, we can show examples of how people have done things to get people started thinking about what they might themselves be able to do. And that, of course, needs to be tailored to the person's life situation. So, again, if there's a sibling in the picture who's getting support, okay, well, let's use that example. Um, if there's uh, a special needs child in the picture, well, let's talk about a scenario where we had someone set up a trust for that purpose of supporting a child, and then whatever was left over then came to support um, working at the university. So it really is a question of knowing the donors. And, and that's actually a much easier conversation in terms of 
let's talk about you. Let's get to know each other. Uh, let's get comfortable. Uh, and I think a lot of it is that, that sort of comfort and trust, because once that's established, people disclose um, a lot um, once they believe that they can trust. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of the idea, you know, in our world, we're, we're always trying to build trust with prospective customers and also maintain it with current customers by way of uh, testimonials, case studies, right? Storytelling. And it sounds like that's a part of your work. I guess I wonder, um, do references ever come into play? Does somebody ever say, hey, Greg, could you put me in touch with that other prospect you mentioned who did that annuity and that creative structure? I mean, are you ever connecting people or is it more household to officer uh, level conversations? It's typically household to officer conversations. I mean, I guess uh, to some extent you could see people um, wanting to talk with peers. That happens, I think, a little more spontaneously where people know in their own circle of friends how something has worked and they do homework that way. Uh, Not so much that we trot someone out. Um, Got it. So, Let's um, talk a little bit about the experience over the last 12 months. It's roughly 12 months since the um, COVID-19 started hitting the headlines. And I would imagine if you looked at the, uh, you know, the Venn diagram of at least your traditional stereotypical plan giving prospects and people at highest risk for, you know, COVID, um, there's pretty much direct overlap. And so um, while every frontline officer had to um, adapt, you know, in the way that we've uh, engaged people and so forth over the last year, I would imagine it might be the most extreme, especially uh, if I then were to add another uh, layer, at least again, stereotypically around, right, technology adoption and, and, and Zoom and mobile and all of these things that have helped people stay connected, there might have been um, a modestly steeper learning curve. I don't want to be too presumptuous because I think sometimes we're, we're um, I don't know, we, we overly um, tag the, uh, the older generation as, as being less tech savvy than they really are. But you tell me what that experience has been like. Um, the arc of the emotional journey that we've all experienced over the last year um, has to be potentially the most acute among your population. So what has that meant for your business? I mean, on one hand, I could see uh, people thinking more uh, consciously about uh, estate planning and wills than ever before. On the other hand, I can see people having buckled down to really, um, you know, not maybe make philanthropic investments to, to just sort of see where things were going to land. Um, but now we're, you know, here at a time when um, obviously there's still tremendous challenges on Main Street. Um, the vaccination process seems to be accelerating. Um, and a lot of folks on Wall Street are predicting pretty aggressive rebounds here this summer have you felt all of those emotions? I mean, what has the experience been just recognizing that your target population is sort of um, so so connected to, to the COVID uh, pandemic? Yeah, no, it's definitely been uh, a mixed experience. In terms of technology, they're either really savvy, high-level adopters or not at all. So like it's only phone calls. There's no computer, email, anything. Uh, but a lot of people have been... Um, expanding their skill set, I guess I would say, in terms of being able to communicate. And certainly some of them, they were were forced to do it. Um, But I think that that's probably been good and they've actually really enjoyed trying something new out. So it's been, I think for people who are um, at at a more advanced age, they've enjoyed the opportunity to stay in touch and actually found it to be a good tool to to have more communication 
um, which is good because a lot of them are sitting at home. Maybe there's a spouse, maybe not. And they're pretty bored. Um, so they've been pretty pleased to talk with us. And um, sometimes they're in a space where they're in a good mood and they're able to talk about things and think about the market going up. A lot of them actually are seeing um, friends and family who are suffering. You know, they've, they've either taken ill or they've passed away. And so we've got to really tread lightly because um, it, it is the crowd where they tend to be experiencing infections at much higher rate and much more significant consequences. Um, but, you know, the, the simple fact is if they're sitting around, they're probably happy to think about what they might do, look at their paperwork, plan things. And so those are things that they can get done. So we've actually seen a lot of people saying, okay, well, I'm thinking about this and, you know, I might as well get this done now since I'm sitting around and don't have much else going on. And so we've seen a reasonable uptick actually in the people who sort of spontaneously call in or email in. Um, we've seen definitely more activity in that space just because people are trying to get something done. They want to have something to show for this time. Uh, I think it's more that than that it's necessarily they're, they're thinking about death specifically, uh, mortality. So those are sorts of the, the, the kind of trends that we've seen. And I think that the, the planning piece really spans fairly far down in terms of ages. So late thirties on up, people are saying, all right, well, I'll just get it done. And what are people in the late thirties? I mean, what, what are the conversations you're having with that group? So for a lot of them, it's either they've gotten to a point where they've um, sort of amassed enough wealth that it's worthwhile to think about it. Or they sort of come to the conclusion they're probably not going to have kids. So they need to get a plan in place to, you know, take whatever assets and do something good with it. Those are sorts of the, the patterns that we tend to see in that age group. Um, to some extent, it's also based around if there's a, a new job and a move to a different region, something along those lines. And, um, you know, for them, obviously, whatever they're thinking about doing is going to be a ways down the road. So we have to think about the conversation in a, in a very big picture sense. So they're, they don't tend to be very specific sorts of plans. It'd be something like a needs-based scholarship for uh, a student in the School of Engineering. Um, we, you know, we don't tie it to any particular, um, say, simulation center or something like that, because by the time somebody in the 30s is, is no longer with us, it's going to be a radically different world. So you need some flexibility as to not overly constrict a gift with that long of a time horizon. Absolutely. I mean, that, that universally applies because we don't know what's going to happen down the road, um, you know, when it's, when it's, say, more than a couple of years out. But especially for the younger audience, um, we, we tend to keep it broader, not because we're opposed to having things be tailored, but you know, we want to be certain that if they put a plan in place, that we can actually do what they want to have happen. So as you think about kind of how the sector has evolved, the experiences over the last year, what are you excited about in the coming years? What are you concerned about? I mean, are there areas of innovation, optimism, or um, maybe challenges that people don't appreciate as well? I think one of the challenges we're going to see in the near term is uh, pipeline development, uh, because a lot of the methods that we've been looking at traditionally are things that we've not been able to do especially well. So getting out and doing discovery visits, um, that's been a real challenge these last months. I think we're adapting and adapting increasingly well in the sense that we are a lot more versed in just getting that conversation started and people are more comfortable with taking it. But I, you know, there'll be a lag because you, you don't typically sit down with someone and then they say, all right, well, my entire state's coming to you. It does happen, but it's a little atypical. 
Um, so it takes some time to build to where um, you've got actual gifts closing. And I think this will be the case sort of across the organization, not just in the gift planning space. So we're going to have to put a lot of um, thought, a lot of creativity into how do we build that pipeline up going forward. I think one of the opportunities is that we, we're going to see people having a hunger to engage again, just because they've been sitting around and waiting for, for life to continue in the way that they want it to. And so they'll be more inclined to say, all right, well, I'm going to go out to this event or whenever we get to that space where we're doing that again, or yeah, I'll, I'll grab coffee with this person and hear what's going on because I haven't really heard much other than that UConn has this great system for testing for COVID using wastewater. Well, okay, that, that's a good story, but it's not an exciting story that they want to hear um, on an ongoing basis. So we can come in and, and provide some additional content that I think will, will be good. And so we want to make sure, I think, that we do when travel resumes normally, that we um, take advantage of that. So those are, I think, some of the, the sort of near-term yeah. phenomena I would see. Love it. And when you think about, I don't know, any other missed opportunities or areas of, um, you know, if you were uh, an advancement leader wanting to audit the intersection uh, or the coordination between gift planning and some of the other um, parts of the division, what are some of the questions that you would ask or some of the data you'd want to see to just do the highest level um, discovery around how are we doing today? So I think I would want to um, understand what are some trends that we're trying to take advantage of. So when we think about, for example, the increased frequency of people using donor advised funds. Okay, well, how are we interacting with that trend? Because it is in part a gift planning mechanism in the sense that people are doing it for tax planning reasons and, and they're sort of hunting on the, um, the charitable giving side of it. So, okay, that's good. We like that people are thinking about those things, but then we need to get them to move to the next step of outcomes. But how do we identify them in the first place? Um, you know, somebody who is a planner and has enough assets to have it be worthwhile to set up that sort of a fund. So one of the things, for example, that we've been doing is um, some internal education, working with development staff on how donor advised funds work, why people do them, um, but also looking at our data. So I had, uh, for example, a, a poll of all the people who gave in 2019 using a donor advised fund. So did went through all of those people. I did this myself, actually, because I wanted to understand it better. Um, who gave? Which people do we know? Which people do we not know? And where is their opportunity? And so there obviously are people in that pool where we know them very well and they're our major donors. And so, great. They'll keep doing it, no problem. Then there are people who make sort of a one-off gift is a memorial gift or something. And, and probably we don't really need to talk to them because they're not otherwise our supporters. But then in the middle, there's this nice pool of people who are clearly thinking about us. And oftentimes we haven't talked to them. So like there's a doctor in New York, sends us a couple of thousand dollars for scholarship money every couple of months. We've never talked to him. We have no record of any dialogue. So that's somebody where clearly we need to find a way to reach out to that person and understand what the interest is, what's the capacity there. Um, so looking at that sort of a pool is very helpful for us because we only have sort of publicly available data on wealth and, and capacity. But this is a, an interesting piece in terms of blending behavioral data with an indicator of assets 
So it helps us to be more successful in that space going forward. So those are the, the sorts of things that I look at. Um, you know, QCD, yeah. IRA giving is similar in that respect. I think what you're highlighting is something we're talking a lot about right now. And honestly, I feel like we just have to do a better job at helping address this through data and technology is so much of stewardship and relationship building today is rooted in how much somebody gave, right? I mean, a lot of stewardship bands are how much did, you know, if you gave X thousand, then this is what acknowledgement or experience you will receive. And that obviously makes a lot of sense in many regards, but it doesn't at all speak to potential. And so when you have the modest gift, maybe consistently from somebody who has really, really high net worth, how do we make sure that those individuals um, are identified hopefully less manually than you maybe have to go do today one by one by one? How could we be a part of that? Um, and then how do we make sure we route prospects like that to the appropriate desk based on the rules? And so, you know, imagine a future where based on some set of rules that we all agree upon, you know, if the gift fund, you know, type is donor advised fund or the gift level or consistency and net worth is X, then put them in front of me so that I can make sure to still do the additional eyeball test. Um, but, but that's an area that I just think we have to get better at. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, um, but, but this idea of creating stewardship plans and I think plan giving can intersect with this based on potential, not just based on how much did they just give. Yeah, unquestionably. I mean, we routinely see people go from a $100 a year donor to making a $300,000 bequest or something like that. So it's, it's absolutely worth our time to think about that pool and to understand them, like I said, in terms of behavior, so how they give, but also in terms of, um, for example, people who work for State Farm Insurance oftentimes, even today, have a defined benefit retirement plan. So let's look at that pool. Who's in there? And obviously here, we don't have a lot of examples, but where I used to work in Illinois, we had lots of people in that pool. So let's think about that um, carefully how do we leverage what we know about people, even if it doesn't necessarily say exact assets, to what outcomes are potentially on the table so we can target our outreach better? So the same way that certain companies have been targeted for generous uh, matching gift programs, there's a plan giving equivalent of that. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so what are those companies that are in the Yukon community? I mean, are there specific, you know, if somebody joined XYZ company, is that an instant flag or trigger or should it be? Um, I, I don't know if it, it, it isn't, and it probably to some extent should be. Um, so like, like certain banks here in the region have that feature of their um, compensation packages. Uh, let's try to not get too detailed in terms of which companies it is. Um, so, but, but we know at least in many cases, if somebody works here, that person probably has um, a good retirement plan. So we want to think about how we can work with that person more closely. Or again, people who work for the state of Connecticut, whether it's through um, UConn's health system, so actually the hospital side of it, or the university or any other state institution, um, they again are a really good pool for us because we know the sorts of um, stability that they have going forward for income and healthcare. And that is, is someone who can much more easily commit to making an outright gift and expect to have assets left to make a plan gift. Are there people in the plan giving community that you look to for guidance, advice? You know, one of the great things about the advancement sector is it's very collaborative. I would imagine 
that is the case in the gift planning world. But again, I don't know as much about it. Who are some of the people that you've learned from or that should be top of mind for us as we think about getting more educated in this uh, realm? Yeah, no, I mean, there are certainly all the, the gurus out there and, and you know, people here would, in, in, in gift planning would know who they are. Um, so I won't necessarily highlight them, but I can certainly speak to uh, somebody like um, Kent Levan at San Luis University, where I got my start as uh, what you might call a summer intern. Um, he's been in gift planning for a long time, has seen all the trends, knows it inside and out, and uh, has a really deft touch in working with donors. So we've uh, we stayed in touch and I've learned a good bit from him. Um, somebody else who comes to mind is Pat Vickerman, who's actually the Vice President for Advancement at Illinois State, came up through gift planning. And it's interesting that a lot of times the people who are coming up from a gift planning background and go on to be leading operations um, really appreciate it and, and also get that integration piece especially well. Um, so I think that that's probably the, a profile that would be good in terms of reaching out to, um, you know, to talk to people who are doing it and doing it well. Um, we're very fortunate here at UConn in the sense that um, Jake Lemon, who's our Senior Vice President for Development, has a background also coming up through gift planning and financial planning. And, uh, you know, I have it easy. I don't have to educate upward in our organization. It's, it's already done. Uh, but he's been, yeah, he's been a great partner. Yeah, I'm sure that the same way that you're constantly thinking about, you know, how can we creatively structure this gift with your development peers. I mean, he's probably bringing that perspective to almost every um, significant conversation just because it's uh, it's probably like, you know, muscle memory. Once you've seen it so many times, you just sort of know, you know, how to, you know, how to at least um, guide people in other ways they might think about things. Absolutely. Got it. Um, what else? What else should we be uh, covering today? This has been really uh, interesting, and it's a reminder of how much more we have to learn. But anything else that's top of mind, or anything else you were hoping to share with our audience? Um, well, uh, what, you know, one of the questions that you typically ask is, "Are people hiring?" And so I did want to make sure to put in a plug that yes, we are hiring, and we'll continue to do so. Um, you know, obviously the, the specific opportunities will vary over time. Um, so you know, look if you don't necessarily see what you're looking for. Um, you know, let's let's still talk. We have a good a good culture here and a good um, talent development team. So I want to make sure to get that in um, because I know that advancement yep. is, a, is a field where there is a lot of demand and gift planning in particular. Um, it, it's hard to get good people. Yep. Well said. Um, and the other question I usually ask is if people want to stay in touch with you or get in touch, uh, what's the best way to do so? Yeah, either by LinkedIn or just send me an email not at foundation.ucon.edu. Um, you know, glad to, uh, to talk with anybody, whether it's about getting into gift planning or what, uh, what organizations are doing in gift planning. Um, you know, we want to make sure that um, we learn whatever we can and uh, talking to people is a great way to do it. I love it. Well, Greg, it's uh, been a pleasure getting to know you better, learning more about your journey. Would it be too much to ask um, for you to close out the show in German. Is that something you think you could swing for us? <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, any, any particular message you'd like to give to people? I, nobody will really know the difference. A couple people maybe. So I'd say just use a uh, creative license. Vielen Dank fürs Zuhören und Verzeih. So that was something like, um, uh, thank you for listening and uh, an Austrian way of saying, um, hope you all do well. Does it ever come up in your work, have you ever like 
once in a while, there must be some, some donor who studied German or grew up in Germany or something like that along the way. Oh, absolutely. There are donors where we do everything in German. Our conversations, our emails, our data services people hate it because I put these emails in and it's like all in German. But that's what we do. I love it. Talk about being donor-centric. All right. Well, on that note, Greg, I hope you and the UConn team all do well. Uh, thank you uh, so much. All right. Yeah, thank you. Have a great day now. Enjoy, enjoy Florida. All right. Cheers. Cheers.